I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending December 3rd. This week, we're just going to space out. There are quite a few things going on in Earth orbit right about now. The U.S. is on the verge of launching two very different, deeply significant projects in the coming weeks. One is an experiment to establish the viability of communications between Earth and space-based systems using lasers instead of radio waves. The other is one of the most powerful scientific instruments ever devised, the James Webb Space Telescope. We'll talk about that and more with veteran aerospace editor George Leopold. First, a rundown of some more recent news in EE Times this week. The Department of Defense has finally awarded contracts to move some of its operations to the cloud. Government procurement is often messy, but this project was particularly sordid. Five years ago, the DoD decided to move some of its operations to the cloud. It called that program JEDI. The DoD intended to award the JEDI contract to a single company, which many people even at the time thought was a mistake. Why? Well, because most large organizations spread their business across several cloud providers. But then President Trump decided to keep criticizing Amazon during the selection process, and the JEDI contract ultimately went to Microsoft. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos challenged the award based on Trump's meddling. The DoD short-circuited that whole process by canceling JEDI and establishing a new program called JWCC. We reported this week that the Pentagon has just decided to split its JWCC cloud business between Amazon and Microsoft. The point of quantum computers is their potential to be incomparably superior to any computer based on standard computing methods. It turns out that modern supercomputers might be comparable after all. Not equal, but not ridiculously inferior either. It's a claim Google made a couple of years ago. This week, we report on a recent development from Chinese researchers who have modeled a quantum circuit on a supercomputer, and they've achieved results that aren't as fast as a quantum computer, but close enough for the researchers to claim that the quantum supremacy gap is closing. If you are already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left, you'll see links to all of these stories and more. If you're not already on the site, you can go straight to eetimes.com for all of our coverage. You'll also find links to articles from our sister publications about power electronics, embedded ICs, analog circuitry, new product news, distribution news, and more from the likes of EDN, Power Electronics News, Electronic Products, EPS News, EE Times Europe, Embedded.com, EE Web, and Analog Planet. EE Times has been running stories on an ambitious project at the Department of Defense to set up a space-based communication system that relies on laser beams as the transmission medium rather than the RF spectrum. You can read the details on the EE Times website. The articles were written by my EE Times colleague, George Leopold, a veteran journalist and author who's been covering aerospace for quite some time. Here's my conversation with George. 
so we're so uh, the Defense Department and NASA are working together to uh, loft a laser communications relay demonstration. Um, and blessedly, they did not try to turn that into a, an acronym that you can actually pronounce. Uh, LCRD is just fine. Thank you. Um, what is it? Tell us what this thing is. Hey, Brian. Good to be back. Um, so they NASA demonstrated uh, sort of the interim capability around the moon, I think, in 2013. So this time they're going to they're gonna go out to geosynchronous orbit and they're going to uh, relay eventually through the International Space Station down to two ground stations, one in California, the other one in Hawaii. Both were chosen because there are not a lot of clouds and the air is dry, so it eliminates the attenuation problem when you're trying to shoot uh, lasers around from from 22,000 miles up. So what you know, obviously, what this means is if it works, it's gonna they're going to have a much bigger pipe to relay data from hopefully from maybe deep space, certainly from beyond the moon over the next uh, decade or so. Uh, during the briefing, I asked a fairly stupid question of the program managers about latency, thinking, well, you know, we're going to be going at the speed of light. And they said, no, we're not violating any laws of physics. But anyway, it, 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 they, it'll be a huge increase in bandwidth. And, and most of the stuff that's up there now, all the stuff, the Starlink stuff that uh, Elon Musk is doing, they're all using RF communications. And, you know, so that's their interference problems. And uh, they're running out of spectrum. So NASA makes this pretty pretty sound argument that laser those laser frequencies are unregulated. Mm-hmm. So they're widely available, and it's just a question of sort of getting everybody using the same uh, format as you will, so that they've got compatibility between different systems. And ultimately, you're going to have a bigger pipe coming back to Earth. Uh, you know, and the demonstration is to figure out, okay, so how much of the signal is going to get attenuated mm-hmm. once it hits the Earth's, Earth's atmosphere, and you can tweak that with algorithms and so forth. So it's supposed to launch this week, December 4th. Uh, it's catching a ride on a Defense Department um, launch, and uh, hopefully once it gets up to geosynchronous orbit, they'll put a terminal on the space station, I think early next year, and then they'll start the demonstration to see if this thing works. But it's a, a pretty slick idea. Instead of just getting, you know, fragments of images from uh, something landing on on Mars or waiting, you know, of whatever, thirty six hours to get to get a full uh, video file, this thing potentially could deliver uh, streaming streaming video in real time. Well, wow, that's actually pretty wild. Now, uh, so uh, I'm going to ask my dumb question. I mean, don't you get some attenuation with weather and whatnot when you're when you're working with RF, anyways? Yeah, yeah. I I think the big thing is just there's there's so little RF spectrum left, and there's so much stuff up there. I mean, uh, uh, SpaceX is launching these this constellation for for a global internet, and every every launch is I think about fifty birds. So, you know, they're all connecting via RF. Well, they may be using laser between satellites, but to get down to Earth, the downlinks are all RF. Right. So, yeah, and uh, they're talking like not just hundreds, but ultimately thousands of those. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. It's so it's getting pretty crowded up there, and they're running out of spectrum. So I think NASA correctly figures we need to use a different part of the spectrum, mm-hmm. and it has the advantage of uh, being a much bigger pipe. And um, we'll yeah. see what happens. But uh, it should be. I imagine the demonstration is probably going to start like in first quarter of of 2022, unless of course the space station hits a bunch of space junk. <laughs> How's that for a segue? <laughs> Whoa. Well, let's talk about that in a second. Space junk is going is definitely going to be on the on the topic list today. Um with the uh with the LCRD, um you mentioned two locations, um one in Hawaii, one in California. They they were saying that it's rare for both of them to be obscured by weather at the same time, right? Yeah, they're they're thinking if one's not available, the other one will be, and and plus they're they're tweaking the optics on these things to make make them far more sensitive, you know, for for picking up detecting a very narrow laser beam from geosynchronous orbit, you know, that's being relayed from the space station. So there are a number of things they can do. They just have they have to get some operational experience to figure yeah. out how to tweak it. What you know, what algorithms do they need? To write the, and of course they'll need the the uh, data to train the algorithms. So is that the adaptive optics that uh, that they were talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's the, uh, that's that's what they're talking about. Using this is this is this is probably a prime example of how you'd use a technology like that in an in an operational setting. So, and you know they'll have RF as a backup, but uh, they they'd like to bring this online as. As the primary way of getting data back from these deep deep space missions, that that they're planning perhaps later in this decade. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose with the the distances we're talking about, having a big old dish for RF is is pretty impressive. Have you know, as big as the dishes are, they're not that big given the the distances involved. Um, nonetheless, having like a, you know a li- well, you know, a laser seems like more of a pinpoint proposition than even RF, and it's it's pretty impressive just being able to to direct a beam. I would imagine. Right. Right. Well, they've so they've they've done it from lunar orbit, and of course, uh, back in the Apollo days, they were bouncing lasers off of a detectors they left on the surface to gauge the distance between the earth and the sun. So they've got some a lot of operational experience experience with that you know that frequency spectrum. Uh now they're just trying to sort of widen that pipe and so they can so they can bring us uh live pictures from the surface of Mars at some point. Yeah. Um and they're ta- and they're talking about being able to use this uh to contact, you know, to potentially contact uh space probes that go to Mars, go in go, you know, past the uh the Van Allen belt uh or excuse the the asteroid belt possibly into uh into like as far away as Jupiter orbit, that kind of distance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're out exploring, sending machines to explore the solar system, so they have to get, you know, the faster they can get data back, the faster they can crunch it and figure out uh, where we all came from. Yeah, that's, that's wicked cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question about the 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 benefits of going to um, going to uh, optical communications. Um, is there any associated benefit with uh, we? I, 
a lot of people are worried about um, space, uh, you know, militarizing space. And there's good reason for that. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Is there any advantage to going up, relying on optical communications from orbit uh, as opposed to, is that any more likely to be, uh, um, you know, EMP hardened versus? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, yeah, they don't, they don't, they're not really clear in terms of, of, of security and reliability. And I think that's one of the things that they're trying to find out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's being of, of, of lasers in space that that's one way of, you can blind satellites using lasers. That's uh, if if somebody decides they want to knock out our satellites, lasers is uh, is a way to do it without creating a, a field of debris. So, but yeah, they, they didn't they didn't really address that. That's a good question. That's something we'll have to look at. Yeah. So uh, we have been hinting at an interesting segue: space debris, crowded uh, crowded space, um, and that became. Uh, that that became uh, glaringly uh, overt recently. Um, the Russians uh, blasted s- something in orbit of their yeah. own for some sort of demonstration. Tell us what that was. Yeah, they they launched, uh, and this is the, f- the first time I think that that it was uh, a a ground launch missile. Actually hit a target in space. Uh, the 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 previous U.S. and Chinese demonstrations were different. So, to be clear, all three of all three countries have done this. Mm. It makes no sense. It's just highly destabilizing, and the Russians were roundly condemned for what they did. Particularly since they've got three cosmonauts on the space station now, and once the debris field was detected. Uh, all the astronauts and cosmonauts on the space station scrambled to get into their uh, emergency vehicles in case the space station uh, was going to get hit. Luckily, so far it hasn't. However, today, uh, uh, November 30th, there was a spacewalk that was scheduled on the space station to swap out a a faulty antenna, and they canceled it because Mm. of a space junk warning. So, So... uh, a couple of uh, weeks since this happened, it's still affecting operations on the International Space Station, and it and it placed the crew in in fairly uh, fairly uh, severe danger, so bad that they basically had to use their emergency procedures to get everybody buttoned up in their spacecraft should they should the station get hit. So this was a highly irresponsible act. It drew international condemnation as it should. And um, it's it's very worrying. I mean, the, the, the Chinese have demonstrated the ability to orbit a hypersonic weapon that uh, meaning it goes about five times the speed of sound yeah and and then bring it back to earth. So there's a there's a lot of stuff happening right now that's leading towards uh, a, a weaponization of space. And for the U.S., this would be a disaster. I mean, your GPS wouldn't function anymore. All of the timing stuff on communication, wireless communications, GPS, all of this stuff 
could conceivably get knocked out if we lose these satellites. And, you know, this is sort of a threat that the Chinese and the Russians hold over us. We're far more vulnerable given our our space-based assets for a lot of critical infrastructure. So it's pretty worrying, and uh, let's hope uh, nobody does this again. So so difficult from two standpoints. One, the militarization of space, and two, the 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 using space as a dump. We now have uh, thousands and thousands of objects large enough to track by radar, plus a lot of chaff up there that could do horrible damage that's yeah. too small mm-hmm. to even... I think there it's uh, about a million known pieces of uh, of objects in orbiting the Earth right now that that we know of, and they think that's only about forty percent of what's up there. You know, ever since nineteen fifty seven, they've been sending up satellites and spent upper stages of rockets, and uh, a while back. The third stage of the Apollo 12 spacecraft uh, came back around the Earth in its solar orbit. So there's all kinds of stuff up there. We've written about how uh, Northrop Grumman has come up with a way of extending the life of satellites. But anybody who launches a satellite now has to put some uh, the, uh, a spare amount of gas to deorbit it at the end of its lifetime. But... Uh, uh, we're going to have to have to do something to either move uh, satellites to new orbits or to extend their lifetime or pick them up and recycle them somehow. So it's becoming a real problem. I've been fascinated by some of the proposals to to clean up space. Yeah. Uh, giant sails, uh, enormous magnets. It'll be interesting to see what people come up with that uh, mm-hmm. as a practical matter. Um, okay, the other thing we want to talk about, so much fun, well, fun, <laughs> some of the stuff going on up in space is fun, um, one of which is a, uh, the, the, uh, a new telescope going up, uh, named after Mr. James Webb from NASA. Um, tell us about the, the, the Webb telescope and what that, uh, what that's likely to do for us. Well, at long last, after I think about a decade in which the James Webb Space Telescope went way over budget and uh, way beyond schedule, uh, it's known as the telescope that ate uh, astronomy, (laughs) is supposed to launch from um, uh, French Guiana on December 22nd. But just to keep things interesting... Uh, about 10 days ago, uh, during a ground processing incident, a uh, clamp band, a high-tension clamp band designed to help attach the telescope to the booster's upper stage, suddenly released. Ooh. According to reports, importing an unexpected vibration that jostled the fragile observatory. Well, NASA immediately did a review and they said we're going to push the launch date from, I think it was in the next week or so, yeah. to December 22nd. So it is supposed to launch at long last on December 22nd. It will go out about, I think it's about a, a million miles to what's known as a Lagrange point. Uh, mm-hmm. Lagrange point is where there's uh, equal gravitational pull. 
And once it gets out there, it has to go through an incredibly complex series of deployment maneuvers in order to fully open. It needs it needs to be as cold as possible, so they have to unfold a shade, basically, and then open up this gigantic mirror, which will peer within minutes of the beginning of the Big Bang, if, if it works. But the problem is... It's got multiple points, single points of failure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if any one of these things fails in this daisy chain, it won't work and they can't go. It's too far away to fix it. So it's gonna, it's highly risky. But uh, if, if they can get it deployed and get it cooled down and get it pointed, it's, it's going to be well worth the risk and hopefully well worth the treasure that we've poured into building and testing the thing. Well, I, for one, want to know, uh, you know, where we came from. That'll be fun. I mean, yeah, we're, we're ultimately, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, when people ask me, well, you know, why are we spending all this money on, on exploring space? I think the ultimate answer is to find out if we're alone or not. Yeah. And this, this may help us provide some of the answers. Um, you know, and from an engineering standpoint, I, I recall that um, when Curiosity landed on Mars, I think in 2012, we actually, EE Times actually ran a poll saying, uh, okay, who thinks this crazy idea of dropping it down to the surface on a crane will work, on a sky crane? And I think about 50% of those responding to our poll said, there's no way that's going to work. And guess what? It's worked twice. <laughs> So just, you know, you, so you, you know, you gotta you gotta take these, you gotta roll the dice sometimes to get ahead, and uh, that this is a sort of another classic example. It's 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 inspiring. It's 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 inspirational. Even if if you take the science that we could collect out of it, the 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 science that went into getting this these instruments out there is so exciting. Yep. Yeah. And hopefully the lens will work better than it did on Hubble. You'll recall that Hubble was, I think, <laughs> yes. near, nearsighted. But in that, in that case, we had the shuttle and we could go up and with our custom-made tools and repair it, which was one of the great uh, uh, space repair jobs ever attempted. But in this case, once it's out there, it's you know it's it's got to work, and uh, they've tested it. To, in some of the previous tests, this the shade that has to unfurl tore. So that delayed the program by probably another twelve to eighteen months, and they think they've uh, they they of course repeated that test on the ground. And they I saw it when I was on the shaker at Goddard. It's pretty impressive. They try to simulate the launch uh, stresses that it will undergo. Um, but uh, yeah, if it if if it if it's deployed properly, uh, we're going to get some uh, uh, unbelievable science out of it. Wow, cool. George, thank you so much for being here with us again this week. Good to be back with you, Brian. Take care. During our conversation, George and I referred to a bunch of things you might want to learn more about. Of course, there's our article with more details about the laser communications relay demonstration. If you're on this podcast episode's webpage, we've got links to that story and also to the stories I mentioned next. George noted that NASA has been experimenting with laser beam communications for a while. 
Back in 1969 and in 1971, Apollo 11 and Apollo 14 astronauts, respectively, installed reflectors on the surface of the moon. Those were used mostly to measure distance. NASA subsequently mounted a similar reflector on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was sent up in 2009. We've been trying to bounce a laser off it ever since, and only last year, in 2020, the U.S. and French researchers for the first time got a signal back. Details on that are from NASA. Also, George referred to Northrop Grumman's program to repair satellites. That is an entirely new and exciting capability. That's a story you can find on EE Times. We also mentioned the Starlink satellite broadband service from SpaceX. In our conversation, we might have underplayed the numbers the company is talking about. Yes, it's releasing roughly 50 satellites per launch, but it now has roughly 1,600 in orbit. Starlink alone has plans to orbit as many as 42,000 broadband satellites. I would like to thank George one more time for coming back on the podcast. Earlier this year, he interviewed author Jeff Schessel, who wrote a biography of John Glenn. There's a link to that. George himself is the author of a fine biography of Gus Grissom called Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom. And that wraps up this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available through iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, but if you go to our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we mentioned, along with other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.